The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Once a month, most of you know, I, I just do a review of this practice. <clears throat> it's really essential for our own well-being, but also we use to take care of the center. The Pali word is dana, and that usually is translated as generosity. And um, one of the things, the more we bring mindfulness to life, we understand that life, you know, our experience, it is a movement. It's always a movement. We can get tight with craving or get tight with fear, and it, the mind can get fixed on its opinions, its notions of things. And life can feel solid and fixed and static. But when, we're, when the mind's more clear and balanced, we see it's quite fluid, alive with change. And you can characterize this change as the movement of free giving and free receiving. If you just observe yourself in conversation with somebody, or you have sort of a wider view and you reflect on your relationship with your, let's say, family of origin or your neighborhood or your relationship to your job, your profession or your livelihood or your relationship to common ground. You can, you know, if you just sort of leave behind your ideas of that relationship and you observe it as a process, as an actual happening, you'll see that there's a movement of giving and receiving. There's something that's being received and there's something that's being given. And this is even true when we have a toxic relationship, you know, with our neighbor or our partner or our boss or something like that. We're receiving something and we're giving something back. So all things, all aspects of our lives are characterized by this flow. And the idea is to be conscious of that flow of giving and receiving and make it a really beautiful thing. So most of you know here at Common Ground, when we were forming the center some 20 years ago, we decided, uh, partly because it's traditional in this lineage of Buddhism, but partly it's just a really good idea not to charge, not to have suggested donations, and to be really conscious about this flow of giving and receiving. So all the people you know, running the center, I guess you'd say, we practice giving everything freely, like really putting our hearts into what we're doing, our teaching, our cleaning, or whatever, as a free gift. And people then respond by either volunteering their time because they're moved to, or giving money that helps us pay for the building and pay for the paid staff and support the teachers. And so we're really focused on giving freely and receiving freely. When you come to programs, then really receive the building, the community, the teachings as a free gift no strings attached. And it's a practice. It's not easy to receive free gifts. So we practice not falling into this business-like mentality. Well, I've got took this class. I should give something. I should volunteer for an hour or I should give some money. But just first and foremost, just notice how good it is to receive a free gift. And if we're already strategizing how to give back, we're not taking it as a free gift. It's an exchange. It's a business exchange. And we're trying to avoid that attitude. 
So the, our job is to receive things freely and then when the heart is so moved, to give freely. So it feels good both at the end of receiving and at the end of giving. We're giving because we want to give, because it feels good to give. It enlivens our life, makes us feel happy. And so once a month, either I or somebody in the community just reminds us all that this is how it all works here. Because the one ingredient we do need is uh, just to be reflective about how good it feels to receive freely, and how good it feels to give in the right way, given our particular circumstances, what makes us feel happy. If we give too much time or too much money, it will feel off, like we're neglecting something that needs to be taken care of, like our house payment or something. But if we don't give anything back, it also won't feel quite right. If you look, I mean, if you're not paying attention, you won't notice. But if you sort of ask yourself, how does it feel? you'll notice it doesn't feel right. That I'd like to, I care about this place. It will make me feel good to do something to support it. If you have any questions about the pragmatics, you can just see me at any time or any of the office staff or leaders at the center. Anything works. Some people give once a year. Some people give once a quarter. Some people sign up on the website and have an automatic deduction from their credit card once a month. Some people leave cash in the big bowl in the entranceway. So there's any number of ways you can do that. We do keep track of the checks and sort of the formal gifts so you can have a letter at the end of the year for your tax purposes. But if you leave cash and you want us to keep track of that, put it in one of those little white envelopes, put your name on it. And if we don't have your address, put your address too the first time so we can keep track of that. And then you'll get that letter in January with the total so you know how much you can deduct. So that's that. And uh, we're finishing up a series of talks and discussions on sitting practice and daily life practice. And we've been working, as you know, if you've been coming with this acronym RAIN, this will be the last night. We'll go on to start looking at some of the teachings of Ajahn Chah, this very famous Thai meditation master from the last century. But I'll just take a few minutes to review the teachings that we've been using on RAIN, R-A-I-N, and then see if people have any comments before we we go on to the next topic. So one of the hardest things about practice generally is just remembering to practice. We, you know how that is, we get sucked into whatever the drama, whatever the situation is in any given moment, and that problem that we're trying to solve, whatever it might be, like sitting without my body hurting, that could be your problem right now, or wondering what's going on in the debates, or you know, wondering why you came here tonight. So th- any number of problems can arise, and when the mind gets seduced, gets caught in that problem, it lets go of everything else. And so one of the most important things about our formal practice is to have a way of remembering this possibility of life as practice. Normally, as an ordinary human being, our life, by definition, isn't about practice. It's about attainment. We're trying to get something or get rid of something. And if you just reviewed your day-to-day, you know, whatever moments come to mind, if you're really honest, you'll see that it was always about getting or getting rid of something. Like even when you're just distracted and, you know, seemingly thinking about nothing important at all, even that is about 
getting away from what you don't want to be thinking about because it's painful. So I'll space out and you know, think about something insignificant, whatever that might be. And you know, we fill our lives up with a lot of insignificant habits and hobbies and thoughts. But it's not just, um, um, you know, it doesn't happen by accident. We're feeling discomfort in our life and we're looking for a way out. So we pick up some distraction, basically. Even relationships, marriages arise out of, you know, the need to avoid the pain we're feeling in our life. So I'll get involved. I'll do this. So there's another way. Instead of uh, a life of distraction, a life of attainment, getting something, getting rid of something, we need to remember there's another way. It's like a, a different universe, a different reality, a paradigm shift from a life of attainment, getting and getting rid of, to a life of understanding. So something as simple as this acronym, R-A-I-N, or however for you it's easy to remember to practice, it's, it's a profound shift from being an ordinary human being to being somebody who's interested in the way it is, interested in awakening. Awakening isn't an attainment. We're not awakening to become something, the awakened one. That's not a correct understanding of the path of awakening. We're awakening to the way that it is now. right? So whatever we're awakening to, it's already that way now. So it's not so much this idea of attainment, like becoming that beautiful saint, and people will recognize us by our aura, and uh, we just have a sense of... He knows something or she knows something. And that's just like attainment, you know, like having a good haircut. It's an attainment, having a lot of wealth, having a personal style that we've cultivated over the years, you know, the kind of clothes we purchase and how we, you know, use our body language. And we have sort of an identity, a branding, you know, and this is, that's Mark, you know, and that's Jerry. And, and we can have some comfort in that, but that's an attainment too being somebody. Even if your somebody is like, I'm really screwed up. And that's your identity. That's your brand. You know, I'm the screwed up person. I'm the person who can't do anything right. But awakening is a sort of a different paradigm because it's not about becoming something or being something. It's about awakening to the way that it is. And one of the things you'll find is any kind of attainment, even a relatively wholesome attainment, wanting to become a really nice person, that's stressful. It's not stressful to be a nice person, but it's stressful to need to be a nice person or to want to become a nice person or afraid that you're not a nice person. All of those are stressful. So non-attainment, you know, the way to get out of the attainment business is to be interested in awakening. So by definition, the path of awakening is not a path that's stressful. It's not a path of attainment. It's not a path where we want things to be other than they are. And because it's so not our habit, first and foremost, we need a way of remembering this possibility of non-attainment, of allowing things to be, of awakening to the way it is because it just doesn't occur to us. 
what always occurs to us, whether we're feeling bad in a moment or feeling really good in a moment, it always occurs to us to attain something. Like if we're feeling really good, to somehow get this so it never goes away. To perfect it or to hold on to it. Put it in cement so it will always be good like this. One of the things I notice all the time in my practice now, because I more regularly experience happiness and joy, um, and but I notice if I'm not mindful when I'm experiencing some happiness, I'll notice, I'll turn it into attainment like, oh, I feel happy. So then I need to attain something to make the happiness make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense from this ordinary point of view to be happy without attainment. Right? We're only happy when we've gotten something we've wanted. And if we start feeling happy, we assume because there's this possibility of getting something that we want. So I've noticed this connection that when an ordinary happiness arises for no good reason, you know, because the mind isn't clinging, isn't grasping, it's not because anything special is happening, it's because the mind isn't agitating itself through desire, through craving. So there's happiness, but the heart, mind, isn't content with that happiness, isn't steady with that happiness. It needs to have a reason to be happy. So it imagines what it is that will make it happy and then wants it. And then it's stressful, you know, to be in that place. It's not easy to just be okay with happiness, to allow it to be. Unless we we have a way of remembering. So that's what this acronym RAIN is about. It's a way of remembering this paradigm shift from a normal, ordinary human life of attainment trying to get something good, trying to hold on to it, trying to get rid of what's bad, trying to distract yourself from what we can't get rid of, deny, to uh, a happiness, a release, a steadiness for no good reason. It's like the mind, the, the awakening process is abandoning all the activities of the heart and mind that are making this moment unbearable. It's not really an attainment, it's allowing things to cease. And when those things that the mind is already doing now, when they cease, then the mind awakens to the way that it is. So the what's in the way of awakening is the activity the mind is doing right now. And that activity has to be renewed in every moment. So if we're being neurotic in any way, like wanting things to be other than they are or judging each other right now, if we're being neurotic, we have to renew that neurotic activity moment by moment by moment by moment. If we just in a moment don't renew it, then it ceases because everything is arising and passing away. It's not enough to be neurotic in one moment and then, you know, that's like we're neurotic for a while. We have to renew that craving, we have to renew the aversion, we have to renew the delusion or the distraction moment by moment by moment. So if we just let things be, then that neurotic activity ceases. And then we're practicing awakening by allowing things to cease, allowing the neurotic activity to cease. Seeing it for what it is, is the cause for the cessation of it. Because we won't renew it when we see that it's stressful. We only renew our craving, you know, like if I'm 
one of the things I've been craving lately is, well, lately meaning the last 15 years, you know, is a place in the country, you know. And I have all kinds of good reasons to just, oh, you know, we have a nice cabin, little cabin for the common ground community. They can go and do a practice, retreat practice, and that would be so great to have that, and I'll be able to get away, and all that will make me a better teacher, and, you know, I'll preserve the land, and that will be good for the earth, and, you know, all these sorts of things. We'll have to work in community, and that rubbing and scrubbing will be good for us. So there are a lot of good reasons to do something like that. But the craving is stressful. And, you know, when I see it in that with mindfulness, when I recognize it and accept it and I'm interested in it and I'm not attached to the ideas, then the craving ceases. And either that will happen, that vision, that dream will either manifest or it won't, but it won't be a problem either way. If it manifests, fine. Then there will be the problems of that manifesting. If it doesn't manifest, fine. Then there won't be the problems that would incur if that manifested, right? And if it manifests, well, that would be great. Then all the advantages of it will be there, you know. And if it doesn't manifest, you know, all the disadvantages would be there. But that will be okay too. So this cessation doesn't mean I'm not going to try to do it. It just means I won't have to do it for neurotic reasons. There either will be wholesome motivations like love and compassion and joy and, and generosity taking care of myself, taking care of others, there either be wholesome motivations there to carry the vision forward or not. But the ego, in a sense, doesn't have a stake in it. We can have that in our personal relationships. We can have it all through our life. But we just need to cultivate that paradigm shift. Hundreds and hundreds of moments every day. In a formal sit, the probabilities will have more of those moments of transformation from ordinary way of being, trying to get something, trying to get comfortable, trying to get the mind quiet, you know, trying to get a little of that mental bliss we read about when we read meditation books. You know, that's all attainment stuff. And then we abandon that by recognizing, oh, it's just like this. This, whatever this is, this mind-body experience, it's just something being known right now, just like it is for each of us right now. This, whatever it is, our life as it actually is, if it's anything, it's just something being known. What is it? It's this, being known. That's that moment of recognition. And then to sustain that mindful awareness, we have to accept, keep accepting. Just like to be neurotic, we have to be neurotic moment by moment. To be wise, we have to be wise moment by moment by moment. It's not enough to accept the conditions of the moment in one moment. We have to accept, accept, accept. It's not enough to be interested in just one moment. We have to be interested moment by moment by moment. So the recognition, the acceptance, the interest is a sustaining. And that's what leads to profound insight. It isn't enough to be, to do the paradigm shift and to recognize it's like this now and accept and be interested. But when we sustain it, something very profound happens. Basically, the view that's driving the attainment way of being becomes transformed. It just doesn't fit. That's one of the things that when we're recognizing and accepting and interested in the way that it is, one of the ringing insights is neurotic craving, 
neurotic fear is not the way to happiness. We just get it deep, deep in the bones. Fear never makes sense. Hatred never makes sense. Craving, wanting things to be other than they are, doesn't help. It's just stressful. All of these things are nothing but stress. Because when I'm paralyzed in fear, do I get any kind of protection from that? Like, does it help me be safe, being paralyzed in fear? Fear is completely dysfunctional. If I really crave whatever, having more money, having people like me, does the craving itself, in that moment, that actual craving, does it make things different? Does it set in motion the causes to become a different kind of person? If we're craving, the only thing it sets in motion is to crave in the future. We get good at craving. When we're fearing, when we're hating, the only thing it does is it reinforces that tendency in the mind. We get better at hating and fearing. It becomes a stronger tendency in the mind. But this is only revealed when we're in this awakening way of being. When we're recognizing it's like this, when we're accepting, we're interested. We see that all of these self-centered strategies of fearing and hating and wanting and wanting to deny, wanting to disconnect, get distracted, all of them are stressful and there's nothing functional about them. There's nothing pragmatic. They don't lead to wholesome results. So the letting go, the cessation, or better, the not picking it up again, not renewing the hatred or renewing the delusion or the distraction or renewing the craving, It just happens. The mind just doesn't renew it because in that moment it's seeing how insane it is, how it really isn't serving happiness at all. So then that's why that continuity of mindfulness really allows for a deeper and deeper taste of what in Buddhism is called cessation. It's interesting, you know, what we hold as the pinnacle, you know, the Buddha didn't use a positive term. Because then it would just get turned into attainment. I want to get to heaven. You know, transcendent spirituality. He didn't make it that way. Nibbana or nirvana, which we normally think of as enlightenment, this thing we want to attain, it actually refers to the cessation. It's the cessation of neurotic activity. Greed, anger, and delusion. Self-centered activity. That's what awakening, liberation, nibbana, nirvana is about. It is the heart ceases the activity, the agitating, stressful activity of wanting things to be other than they are from a self-centered point of view. Now, from a place of love, the heart can move forward into action, to speech, to thought. But then it's not a neurotic thing. It's an expansive thing. It's really a force of nature. It's like it's an interesting philosophical question. What motivates an awakened human being? You know, if it isn't greed, if it isn't aversion, if it isn't distraction or delusion, what makes an awakened human being do something? Well, it's like the movement of nature. It's like nature works pretty well, even with human beings, part of it. You know, it works amazingly well. And, you know, we could call it love, But love always sounds personal. So in Buddhism, you know, love, metta is the word. It means impersonal love or universal love. We like that word better than impersonal. 
You know, it's like it's everywhere. And that's fine. It's you know whether you you think about it as love without any body behind it, or love with that includes everything. That's you know it's nature itself. In some ways, you know, some people who have been more reflective, this is what they mean by God. You know, they don't think about the old man in the sky who's judging them, because of course that's inside of us. <laughs> that's that internal parent that we've been conditioned to feel. But instead, God is this force without a center. You know, this this force when there isn't this projection of neurotic need, neurotic fear, neurotic hatred, how well things work. We notice this in moments in our life when we're recognizing, accepting, and interested and not attached. We just notice the interactions or the moments where everything seems to work so well. We say the right things, we do the right things. And even if we make a mistake, that's just like, you notice my wife's a dancer and choreographer and Sometimes you, uh, I've got to, because of that, you know, I've got to more than my share of dance concerts, and some of them are horrendous, and some of them are, are pretty amazing. And when you really see good dance, uh, it's, like, uh, it's like nature. You know, it's like watching a storm blow in, or uh, wind blowing through high grass, or, you know, light sunlight streaming through leaves, or things that that the heart intuitively gets as being beautiful, but it isn't beautiful because of any reason. Do you know why? It's almost beautiful because nobody, that everything is doing this together. You know, all these causes and conditions are making it this way. It's beautiful because it's natural, because it's the way that it is. Nobody made it beautiful. And when we try to reproduce it, it just feels tight. There's a very, very funny story I mentioned earlier that uh, after tonight, we'll pick up Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, and uh, you can read along if you want, but I'll be basing my talks on this for a while. And uh, there's a great story of Ajahn Chah. Here's his picture. <laughs> this little, he was not so tall, Thai master. He died in the uh, early 90s, I believe. But anyway, he... Uh, visited one of the monasteries in England that Ajahn Sumedho, this Western monk, had started, one of Ajahn Chah's senior Western students. And uh, in the lobby or the entrance area, one of the lay students, who was a a well-known or a very good painter, took a photograph that they had of Ajahn Chah sitting under his glot, you've probably seen those umbrellas with the mosquito netting around, um, under some big tree in Thailand. So there's a photograph of him. And he took the photograph and he painted a life-size size painting that was exactly like the photograph. So anyway, here's Ajahn Chah, big deal. He's visiting England. He walks into the lobby, sees this big life-size photograph. I mean, it's huge because it, it's not just his body, but includes the forest and intricate detail behind him. And he's standing there looking at it. You know, And the whole crowd is there, including the painter. And uh, Ajahn says, says, perfectionists really suffer. (laughs) (laughs) So when we, you know, the way to be, the way to sort of realize the freedom of nature isn't to make it an attainment. You know, like, 
I really like those people who are just comfortable in their own skin, you know, and uh, who aren't trying to impress anybody. And so I'm going to really try to be that person, you know. So then it's like imitating somebody who's really comfortable in their skin, you know, who isn't trying to impress anybody. And that's like a horrendous way to live, to try to become something like that we imagine. But to somehow realize the experience of being comfortable in our skin, realize the experience of being fearless in life, that's not a waste of time. But that realization arises from a letting go, not from an attainment. We're letting go of what's in the way of that. And what's in the way of that is this neurotic activity that's arising, that's being set in motion right now because the mind is confused. It's not seeing how stressful its habits are. So that's why those habits continue. The habit of shame, the habit of fear, the habit of greed, they continue only because they're not being seen clearly. So this is a this is what motivates us to sort of pick up this other way of being and to sort of take our time all day long. We could be rotating through rain all day long. We take a few minutes as we're doing whatever we're doing, brushing our teeth, and we're just noticing, oh yeah, the mind actually has this capacity to recognize. It's like this now. Brushing is like this. Tasting the mint flavor is like this. These are experiences being known here and now. And then, you know, okay, A, accept, okay. And then you reflect on accepting. Like, what does accepting feel like? Oh yeah, I could struggle with this or I could just allow the experience to be. I could be receptive. I could be allowing. I could be accepting. I could be kind and gentle. These are all flavors of acceptance. You know, until we get really get what that means to accept instead of struggle. To be open instead of to be closed. And then interest, which is very similar to acceptance. You can't really be interested if you're not accepting. And you can't accept the moment without being interested. Otherwise, it's too superficial. Like to really accept the way that it is, you have to really clearly connect. Oh yeah, it's like this. This is what I'm accepting. This is what I'm relaxing with. This is what I'm opening to. So you could just spend some time reflecting on what it is to be interested in here and now what it is to allow this moment to reveal itself in all its glory, all its colors, not to be afraid of it. Oh, 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 this is how it is. This is what's being known. This is how it feels to be alive now. And not just seeing what's easy to see, but curious, what else is being felt here? What else is being seen? What else is arising in this moment? Because you know how it is. You walk into particular rooms and you always see the same things because your mind is trained to see those things. And you always don't see the things you don't see. And it's the same whether we're looking internally or externally out into the world. We see what we're in the habit of seeing. We feel what we're in the habit of feeling. So interest is a kind of humility that knows that we're stuck in habits. And it's an interest in not being stuck in habits, like interest in being fresh and innocent. So you can just experiment that when you go home tonight, you know, and you see whoever you see when you go home, your cat, your partner, your friend, your enemy, <laughs> you know, and to, and to instead of like seeing what you always see when you see that being, you know, maybe to have fresh eyes. Oh, 
there's this living being, or there's no other living being here, <laughs> you know, whatever it is for you. Oh, it's like this. This is what it's like to be alone. This is what it's like to be standing next to some other living being. What a mystery. It's always a mystery. That's, that shows, that, that's when we know we're interested. It's like the hair in the back of the neck starts to stand up because we realize we don't know. That's the humility. Because this moment has never happened before. But most of the time we always think we know this moment, but we don't actually know this moment because this moment is always new. It's like we can have that sense right now, right? Like how new this is. You could have been at Kamagon a thousand times already in your life, but it's never been like this. This group of people, this way, right now. This is brand new. And you see how the interest is like, then the mind just wants to be still and allow the moment to reveal itself. Because we realize that it's so new, if I do anything, I won't really be able to connect, to be present. So we're allowing, we're more willing to be yielding or receptive, sensitive, to be undefended. These are other qualities of that interest and acceptance. And then non-attachment arises as an, a more organic insight, like uh, a more profound trust where we're just allowing everything to be what it is. It, we're allowing our personality. So it's not about being passive in our personality. We're allowing everything to be as it is. The thinking mind, the emotional makeup of this body-mind thing here, and everything external. We're just allowing everything to be the way that it is. This is the non-attachment. It's not a stance. I shouldn't be attached. That's called suffering. Thinking you shouldn't be attached is suffering. Realizing the experience of non-attachment means you're realizing that everything is happening on its own. And there's no reason to mistrust it. The impulse to mistrust how everything is happening on its own, it doesn't arise. That's the experience of non-attachment. When mistrust doesn't arise in the mind. The mind deeply trusts this interdependent arising, what we call this. So this is our practice of RAIN that we've been looking at the last number of weeks. And uh, this is what you can... Don't worry if you don't get it because the whole point is you've got a container now, you've got an acronym. You've got R-A-I-N. And you can just play with it. You can ask questions about N, non-attachment. You can ask questions about interest, acceptance, recognition, a moment of mindful recognition. You know, you can go study. You can go see what different teachers have said about it, pull out their books. Where in this book does this teacher talk about something related to acceptance, investigation or interest, non-attachment, you know? So you can make it a lifelong process to understand this and feel free to change the acronym. You know, there's any number of ways you can do it. This is just one. But the idea is to have some convenient way of remembering this profound shift from being a guy or person who wants to get something to this awakening process, this letting go, this process of, uh, of cessation, the ceasing of what's neurotic, what's heavy. So we have lots of time tonight, 20 minutes. It would be nice. Any questions that you have about the sitting and daily life meditation process, awakening process, 
comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind? Yeah, Julian. Yeah, well, yeah, that that subtle, I mean, I know it's not always subtle, but that subtle in the sense it's not like touching a lectern, that visceral emotional, those visceral emotional feelings that are partly in the body and partly related to content or a story in the mind, they're very, very seductive. And uh, because we have trained the mind our culture, we've been trained to associate those feelings with, like, ourself. Like, uh, and it's like we're trained to respond to those feelings. We're not trained to be interested in those feelings and to accept them. And it's just interesting. It's better to start with emotions that those visceral visceral feelings that aren't so compelling. Um, that's why sitting still for thirty minutes or an hour is really good because. It won't be long before you start feeling some pain. It could be just the pain of boredom or restlessness or the pain of just the body being the kind of collapsing and sleepy mind, sleepy body, heavy body. Or it could be, you know, just ordinary pain like the cramping and pressure and twisting, burning. But we know we're going to be relatively safe for 30 minutes or for an hour. I mean, that's the whole point is to sit in a way where you're not going to be harming your body. So even though the body may be experiencing a lot of pain, you know it's safe to hold still. And then you can really work with the strong tendency of the mind to want to rea- excuse me, react and want to tell stories about what it's feeling. And uh, then when we get good at the more superficial level, those more poignant feelings we can start to work with. One of the things I've had to work with over the years is a kind of a deep sense of terror that started to arise, not in my daily life, but when I'd go on retreat. I, for a while, I was going on a lot of long retreats, three months, sometimes five months. And uh, for the first several weeks, it's like my predominant experience was this very raw, very strong feeling of terror, like my death was imminent. Of course, I was in a very safe place, which was probably what helped it arise. But I could look around and I'd say there were no saber-toothed tigers and people were treating me nicely. I mean, you don't talk, but everybody's sweet and you know everything's laid out for you and organized and you're in this beautiful setting. There was no real danger, but I felt a lot of terror. And it took me a long time before I could really be with them. I mean, I, I circled it for years, which was good staying close where I knew it was there, but I couldn't, my mind, my heart couldn't just settle, couldn't fully accept it, wouldn't fully be interested in it. I could recognize that it was there, but 
kind of there, not right in the middle, not being right in the middle of it. So it just took me a long time to work with that. Some people it's fear, some people it's anxiety, some people it's a deep sense of loneliness, a sense of unworthiness. So the, that deeper, more existential ache or pain or itch is going to be slightly different for different people. But the thing that will be the same for everybody is it isn't easy to bring your mindfulness to it. You can't force it. It has to be an organic settling right into the middle of it where, you, where you've learned through a lot of practice that running doesn't make sense, denial doesn't make sense, making up stories is stressful. And so the only thing that's left is just to be with it. There's, I've told this story, maybe some of you heard me, but I'll just say it again because it's funny and it just makes a lot of sense. This is this man, Sandy Beach, um, telling this story about to the 12-step community about his own experience. And he likened it to being in the ocean, holding a big rock and drowning. And the 12-step community, you know, the wisdom of the 12-step community were like people far away on the beach screaming, drop the rock, you know, let go of the rock. And he's just thinking, you know, when he could hear them, he was just thinking, but it's my rock. You know, this is my life. And uh, he talked in, the, he, in that talk, he said, finally, not because I wanted, not because I believed them, but I was so exhausted or I spaced out and I dropped the rock. And only then did I realize what they were saying, like how much sense it made. Only when I accidentally dropped the ro- rock or through exhaustion dropped the rock did it make sense what they were saying. Before that, it didn't make sense. And this is like us too, with that kind of subtle pain existential pain that we uncover in practice, it doesn't make sense to open to it. It doesn't make sense to let go of our defense. And our defense to think about it, to, to kind of convert it into a story that has to do with me and my life. It just, we feel defended by that activity, even though it's like drowning. It keeps us drowning, agitated. But one day, if we stay close to it, one day we'll notice that we've dropped the rock. Sometimes we drop the rock because someone gives us a, a hug and for a moment, for a few seconds, we feel safe. So safe that that pain, the defense doesn't make sense, so we drop it. Sometimes we drop it because of exhaustion. Sometimes we drop it because we're so, uh, we're so kind of desperate, we don't know what else to do. So there's all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we drop it because we have so much confident, confidence rather, in the people yelling from the shore, drop the rock, that we think, that just makes a lot of sense. And we do it out of kind of an intellectual conviction. It just makes sense. I'm going to check it out. So it can be all kinds of reasons. But the, the key is to stay close to it. Because it's like, a, and, and one image the Buddha uses is like a thorn that's stuck deep, deep in the heart. As long as we don't realize it's there, we can spend lifetimes flopping around, he says, like a fish out of water. That's a pretty graphic image if you've ever gone fishing and put the fish in the bottom of the boat and just to see it flopping around. It really, if you look, if you, it breaks your heart. He says that's, that's what it's like until we realize, oh, there's this thorn in my heart, deep in my heart. And then we start giving it attention. We start staying close to it. We don't want to 
lose it. We actually value, it's like, this is relevant information. This is not something to distract myself from. It's like Carlos Castaneda talks about keeping death on your, just over your shoulder. Was it your left shoulder? Does anybody remember? Or Don Juan, his teacher, actually. Was it right shoulder? Yeah. So just, you want it close by. You don't want to forget that, that about our mortality. You want to remember it. And we don't know when and we don't know how. We want to remember all of that because it makes us really alert and it makes us respectful of this uneasiness in the heart. And in Buddhism, it's the first noble truth. There is suffering in life. There is stress. There is uneasiness in life. This is relevant. That's part of what the Buddha said. It's not. He, he didn't just say there's stress. He says it's relevant you need to have the insight that this uneasiness, whatever you're feeling, Julian, it's relevant. It's not a mistake. It's the fruit of practice. You may not have asked for it, but somehow your life has uncovered this. And the key is not to see it as a problem to get rid of. Because suffering doesn't cease by getting rid of it. Suffering ceases by understanding what it is by getting right in the middle of it and understanding what it is and what it isn't. It never is gotten rid of by getting rid of it. Escaping suffering isn't the way to the end of suffering. Escaping suffering is the cause for what in Buddhism we call samsara, endless suffering. <laughs> yeah, Ellen. Yeah, yeah. And if we could just remembering, remember that the end of that escaping isn't, doesn't lead to the end of suffering. Escaping the suffering isn't the cause for the ending of suffering. There is an end, but the end isn't through escaping. This is a great line in Larry Rosenberg's book on uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing. He, has a, he says, there is an end of suffering, but escaping suffering isn't the end. It doesn't lead to the end. There is an end, but that's not it. It's a really... It's an important point, and it's especially important in light of what Julian brought up for the group. Because when we have a lot of that deeper pain coming up in our life, we really want to uh, be in the uh, practice, uh, the long game. Is that the phrase that's used? You know, We're not looking for immediate results. And so when we're practicing the long game, then any activity that's setting in motion the causes that it will allow us to be right with that pain is worthy of practice. And so one of the things that's part of the long game game is redirecting our attention to music or to walking in the woods or to gardening or to having a wholesome interaction with a friend because then the mind can relearn its capacity of being connected where it actually feels safe connecting. Right? I can really connect with this music. I can't connect with that deep pain, but I can connect with music. I can really connect walking with this friend. I can really practice showing up. And we get confidence in the rightness, the wholesomeness of really being connected. And see, then that deepens the confidence so that, well, if that felt so right then, maybe it's also right with this pain. So one of the really important things is to read, like we don't always have to be practicing the one thing. And this is the tendency, maybe more in the West, I'm not sure, but definitely we have this tendency, it's like, 
We just want to do the hardest thing and get it over with. But that strategy is aversive. Like, I want to go right to the deepest, most difficult experience and get my freedom. I don't want to put it off. But we really want to have this vast view of practice. Like, maybe this path, let's just, why not open our minds? Maybe it will take 100,000 lifetimes. You know, something that's beyond our comprehension. Then, all of a sudden, we have a very gentle and patient attitude about the practice. And we're willing to sort of put the time in to develop the qualities that will eventually allow us to be fearless with what we can't be fearless with now. This is nice about, you know, the, in the terms of the legends, some of you know that this historic Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha, um, presu- um, you know, as the legend or myth goes, he lived an incalculable number of, of years prior as this uh, wandering ascetic named Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho is named after him. So this is, you know, I don't know how many cycles of world con- uh, expansion and world contraction, like big bangs and then contraction. So, but like an incalculable number of those. So we're talking about a long, long time ago, this seeker was there and there was another Buddha and he was so inspired by that Buddha and all the good that that Buddha was doing. He had the intention, I want to be a Buddha and do really good things that help a lot of people. And then for, you know, as many lifetimes as that would be, you know, which is beyond comprehension, he perfected the qualities that not only would allow him to awaken, but then awaken with the personality that he could articulate his own insight so that other people could understand it. We are the beneficiaries. So when we awaken, we've got the benefit of somebody who did a good job art at articulating the process of awakening. So, But I like that story because it gives us a, a really vast view of the practice. you know. And then, then we see, so if I am going to go listen to music, instead of thinking I'm bad, I should be practicing, the question, the appropriate question is, what kind of qualities can be developed as I'm listening to music that will be really wholesome, really serve me in the long run, where I can practice appreciating, you know, like the, the quality of appreciation. That's a wholesome quality. So not just being spaced out listening to music, but really being mindful of the joy that arises. Being mindful of the continuity of awareness, like that steadiness, that full even presence with the music, you know? Notice the joy permeating the whole body. The whole body relaxes in the absorption into the music. So we can notice, we can cultivate all sorts of wholesome qualities with the music. Or any any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And you could do it in 12 weeks and then it would be so appropriate to start over with step one and the 13th week. And then, I mean, that's what we do with the Buddhist studies class. We've been going through the list now. We're in the third six-year cycle of going. And hopefully, you know, if I live for a while or somebody after me, you know, they just keep going through the list because it's useful. Yeah. yeah thanks. Paul, did you have a comment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.